You got to keep the big picture that, hey, we're changing the world. We're changing the world. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse to their industry. Pulse Welcome to, to Electric People. We have Dave Madsen on the show. Check out Tim Ballard. Jeff Curl. Sheckler. Kenzie Watts. The League presents Electric People. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Electric People. Um, we have a cool episode today. So I'm here with Jolian Collier, who runs an organization called Counting Coral. How are you doing today, Jolian? Oh, I'm good, my friend. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. So, so, so glad to talk to you and thank you for reaching out. You know, I got to tell you, we became acquainted through our Instagram page, right? Like you had seen a couple of the episodes that we've done and reached out. And I got to tell you, we get a lot of those and um, they don't always end up in me becoming super, super interested in your story and in your personal background. So when, uh, when I had learned about the organization that you're in charge of and that you've created and also a bit about your background, I just thought that, man, this is a story that people have to hear. So thanks for doing the work and for seeking us out, man. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's a shot in the dark when it comes to Instagram and you reach out to a lot of different influencers and people and podcasts and not everybody responds. So I appreciate you responding because uh, uh, I think it's a valuable thing that we're doing and a great story. And uh, so, yeah, I appreciate it. Well, I agree. And so, as you know, um, you know, primarily this is this has turned into a podcast about uh, leadership and development and and salesmanship and basically you know, how people can create great careers and sustainability. But every, you know, once or twice a quarter, we try to get somebody on that knows a special thing about the cause. You know, we work in sustainability, we work in renewable energy. You know, we've had different climate change experts on, and we've had different people that see the effects of the work that, that the guys in the field do. And we're, you're our first, um, you know, coral or ocean specialist. And as I read through the, the pieces on what you're what your um, organization does. I actually learned a lot and hope to get into that. So why don't we just get started by, first of all, you've got this magnificent accent. From whence does that accent hail? <laughs> well, uh, depends who you're asking uh, or who's telling the story, but I'm originally from England. Uh, I've been in the US for like 32 years now, but because I've been here so long, I sound like a bloody Australian, mate. So uh, it gets a little confusing for <laughs> I'm not Australian, yeah, not South say. African, not New Zealand. I'm from England originally. So when you go back to England, are people like, what has happened to your accent? Yeah, pretty much. Well, you know, you turn it on. Uh, you turn that English accent back on and you kind of slip on the American stuff. So instead of water, you'll say water or, you know, trash can will be a beer. <laughs> you know. So we do our best That's to like great, get this thing straight away. You know? <laughs> So, so you run a, an organization called Counting Coral, and as I've understood, it's a 501c, so true nonprofit organization. And what's the what's the mission of your group, and how did you get how did you get started? How did you decide to to devote your time and energy to this cause? Well, um, I got started because I'm an ocean lover. You know, I'm, I've, I've dove all over the world. So at a very young age, I realized really quickly that uh, nature was under attack. So I decided to travel the world for a year, year and a half, and then consistently traveled after that for many, many years, uh, diving, surfing, and then become a videographer down in Fiji. I used to film uh, surfers. I was one of the first actual guys to use video down there. Uh, so I go down there every year, start filming the surf and filming the guys, selling them the DVDs, selling them the images. But more often than not, when you're in those waters, they're very like, you know, dangerous waters, big waves. A lot of people that are coming over on vacation don't realize how, um, tr you know, dangerous they are. So they're kind of very apprehensive. So I spent a lot of time with the camera in the water, filming the reefs and filming the sharks and, uh, you know, just watching Reese die, come back, die, then not come back. Eh, kind of like sung a message in my head for years and it just kept mithering me. And, I, you know, I did the whole environmental things like trying to get all my friends to stop eating fish and, you know, trying to preach from the, the rooftops. And then, you know, life is life, right? So you just work in, uh, had a family, couldn't really afford to dedicate a lot of time to helping out with that. But then fortunately being in a successful position, being in the construction business, I managed to be able to retire. Uh, so once I hit retirement, I said, okay, what do I got to do here to uh, spread awareness and make a huge 
difference and impact in the way coral restoration works. So what we did is I came up with a plan because I could show you a picture of a dead coral, I could show you a piece of a living coral, and most people would not know the difference. Uh, if you go snorkeling really? on a yeah, because a bleached coral, which is essentially a dead coral, goes white. And sometimes prior to that, it goes a luminescent green and purple, really bright colors, which is associated with reefs, but it's also associated with the death of a reef. So mm. it'll go to this, what they call fluorescing. So it will fluoresce in these beautiful colors, and then it will go white and die. So you could be snorkeling and see white coral and go, wow, this is beautiful. It's amazing. I can't believe this thing exists in the ocean, but the reality is it's dead. So for the average person, they don't have a clue what's going on. So mm. how, do you set, how do you set precedence to drive awareness and get the message out there if you're trying to show pictures of a dead coral and nobody knows about it? So we came up with the sculptural art installation concept where we design, uh, build, donate and install sculptural marine parks in the ocean. We've targeted our efforts in Fiji. We're working with marine scientists down there. They flipped their lid when they saw the designs because um, we ticked all the boxes for these guys. Um, one of the problems with coral is when it dies, it dies off in vast numbers. And there are a few corals that survive in, survive in that mass die-off. And what we do is we target those guys because they're like genetically superior. So it's kind of like having, you know, an athlete that can run, you know, a really fast 100 yards or 200 uh, meters or whatever it is. We know those guys are genetically superior. I couldn't go up against them in a race. They'd beat me all day long. <laughs> So we go after these guys as a genetically superior and we, what we call what we considered climate tolerant coral. Uh, and that's the best hope we've got to save coral right now is to harvest these guys, fragment them, put them up onto our sculptures, let them grow to maturity, spawn, and that spawning will naturally propagate ecosystems with this climate tolerant coral. So when a reef dies off, it's all dead. Hopefully the spawn will then land onto the coral and grow this coral out. And just by happenstance, we designed it to alleviate from predators because there's a huge problem with predators. I mean, it, the list of problems with corals goes on and on and on and on. So we came so up I with have, the these sculptures. Like when you, I, this is a new concept for me. So I've, I've heard of like, you know how um, some cities are doing this for like skate parks. Like they don't want like a massive just skate park in the middle of their city. And so I've seen how sometimes they'll create like these like that look artistic they look like, like there's like some things like that but they're open like parks to be skated and things like that it, it's it sounds kind of like a similar idea only you're making an artificial ecosystem where like a natural ecosystem can grow but when i picture these structures having never seen it in my head how big are they how are you building them how are you installing them and then what what impact does it have Wow, so that's all the tricky stuff. <laughs> so yeah, uh, the I don't know if they're talking about something that's as big as me or something that's as big as this building. You know? Yeah. So let me explain it the best way I can, because uh, if people aren't visually seeing what we're talking about, it can be very difficult. So our first park is being installed in Fiji as soon as Fiji opens up uh, on a reef. And where in Fiji? It's in adjacent to Plantation Island Resort and Malolo Reef. We're in okay. partnership with Coral for Conservation, which is the group that we're donating to. And they are affiliated with Plantation Island Resort, who is hosting us during this install process, because it takes about four weeks for us to get this stuff in the ocean. So it comprises of 109 sculptures. Some wow. are ranging from two feet around and stand about three feet off the sandy floor. And then other ones are four feet off the, off the floor. And other ones are seven feet off the floor. Some comprise for only one coral to be grown on. And then some have 15 corals to grow on them. And we design them in such a way that we elevate them from the sandy floor because predators are a huge problem. Uh, with industrial runoff now is going into the ocean is changing the food source for predators So it's injecting a massive amount of food into the Ecosystem for predators and they're exploding. So if you imagine the reefs all dead, right? Then we got that mm -hmm. rare coral that's sitting in the middle and we want to get to it before the predators do because there's no food for those predators anymore So they're gonna go after that rare coral that's now surviving So it's like this race yeah. against for us to get that coral put it in a protected environment 
and hopefully, fingers crossed, it'll grow to maturity to spawn. So, so you um, take I'll it, you take it out of the structure and inject it into like a natural coral that's that's dying to try to get it to kind of restart. Now, what we do is we we go and grab that coral and we microfragment it, so we clip pieces off of it, and then those microfragments will grow into the original size very quickly, and then we plant those guys onto the onto the sculpture. So currently, we're working with this organization that has harvested that coral for us. They're currently growing it out. It's ready for this installation because coral takes an incredibly long time to grow. I mean, in some cases, it's a centimeter a year. So can you imagine oh some of these things yeah. are 50 feet tall? They're four, five, five, six hundred years old and just sat there slowly building upon itself. They're incredibly rare uh, animal life form that's under our oceans that are pretty much underrated, in my opinion. So it's equivalent to like the rainforest, right? Like the, it, that'd be like if like the rainforest started dying. That's similar to what's happening with like marine life and, and the habitat of coral, yeah? Well, you can correlate the two. So if you look at it like this, coral reefs are the most biodiverse ecosystems on the planet, and they only make up 1% of the ocean floor. So it absolutely supersedes the rainforest in terms of diversity and animal life forms and what it supports. So the rainforest, everybody knows the rainforest, birds, bugs, insects, snakes, you name it, there's hundreds and hundreds of species of animals. They pale in comparison to coral reefs. Wow. So, yeah. That's what, and are you doing all these, um, you know, you mentioned that you love the ocean, you surf, you would do photography and filming. You're, you're, you're doing all this work. Um, I mean, it encounters like your, your, your profession, which was construction. And then your passion, which is what you dive, are you like actually going underwater and installing these and, 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 you know, going, you know, putting the oxygen on and going and taking these micro fragments out? Is that, is that how you do it? Pretty much, yeah. So uh, the installation process is quite tricky because it depends on the location. So like in the US, we you would rent a huge barge. In Fiji, you're talking a 16-foot boat that's rocking around the ocean with a 500-pound sculpture <laughs> that you've got to get overboard really quickly with float bags. Once it's in the water, it's more controllable. But when it's on the boats, you're in, you're in, you're in for a hellstorm if something goes wrong. So you've got to get these things off the boats really quickly, use the float bags, float them down to the uh, seafloor. So this 109 sculptures are set in a circle. In the middle of the circle is the centerpiece, and then there's eight tentacles that run out from that, like a crop circle almost. So we have to go down with ropes, stake everything out, do all the layouts first, then we sink the sculptures to where the rope layouts are, so we get everything um, you know, uh, laid out correctly. And then we drop all those sculptures in there, and then we plant the coral on them afterwards. Now, were you doing this before, or did you figure out that system of putting it in a circle and how to build them and what size and all that? Or is this is this something where you had like a template to follow, or did you create it? No, no one's doing this. So this is a first. This is the world's first installation of a stainless steel sculptural garden, specifically designed for rare um, climate tolerant coral. So I just didn't come up with this. I I reached out to all the marine biologists and marine scientists around the world, HIMB and a uh, lady, Isabel Nunez, who's working on the Opal Reef and um, Great Barrier Reef, and the guy that we're working with in Fiji, uh, Dr. Austin Kirby, he's the lead scientist that we're working with. And he flipped his lid because we actually ticked all the boxes. Some of them were happenstance. So when I reached out to Isabel, I said, Isabel, I've got to show you my designs. I really know. And she's a coral propagation specialist. So I'm like, if I'm going to talk to anybody, it's this young lady, right? So mm -hmm. I showed her the designs. And she goes, oh, have you seen the Okinawa um, project? I'm like, no, I've never heard of it. So she sends me these images. And it's these tubes that they drove into the sand. And then they planted coral on it. So it's very much like what we're doing. We're elevating the coral away from predators. But they just drove it sure. into the sand. And then I happen to just weld tubes on there because in my mind, a construction is like, oh, how are you going to grow coral? Well, you need to put it somewhere. Okay, let's weld tubes over everything. These, these tubes that kind of yeah. stand off sculptures. And then I showed it to Austin. He's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is exactly what we're looking for. Um, and then there's a lot of engineering that goes behind that because you've got wave action that could topple these things. And then you've also got the dangers that uh, ocean temperatures are rising, and that's what's killing coral. 
So the more the ocean temperatures rise, the less resistant these so-called resistant corals will become. So we designed it so we can actually lift the sculptures up and put them into deep water during a very hot time. So if the ocean rises for like a month that would then kill off this climate tolerant coral, we can literally swim down, lift it off these stakes, swim over to a deeper area, set them on the seafloor for a month, wait for those waters to cool down, put them back up onto the uh, up onto the park area. So we're trying our best, our very best, to save these animals because once they die, that's it. We're toast. Got nothing, you know. Yeah, yeah. So in some ways, that makes me really like hopeful, and some reason that makes me, in some ways, that makes me feel kind of panicked. You know, like if you're the only one that's doing it, first of all, that's amazing. You know, and like you've got you've got a system that seems to be working, but then I think of the size of the ocean and the the size of the the problem. And we probably need hundreds of people doing it, right? Well, I want to clarify. We're the only ones doing it with the sculptural side of stuff. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of people doing reef restoration. They're doing it wrong, and then they're doing it right. And then they're doing experiments to see if they can genetically modify coral for the essentially heat waves that are going to come. So here's a good example for you. Australia's just built a $268 million facility to house coral because it's uh, considered a seed bank. So they're going to house all the coral because they know it's going to die. So if you look at the projections from today forward, in 30 years, we're going to lose all the coral on the planet. We've 30 already years, lost we lose all of it. All of it. We've lost 50% in 30 years already. Now, you can't tell me and no one in the scientific like world could ever say to me, oh, carbon emissions are going to stop right now. We're going to reverse everything. It's just going to be hunky-dory in 30 years. Uh -huh. so the yeah, we'll fix it. Every, yeah, the projections every scientific body has said is it that it's gone in 30 years and uh, we are not on track to even come close to stopping what's going to happen. So, so Julian, if that, if that happens, if you lose, if you lose 100% of the Earth's coral, in 30 years, rattle off, what's the effect of that? What happens if there's no coral? Well, 25% of the population rely directly or indirectly for food. So you look at all the equatorial nations that are around coral reefs, uh, you're in big trouble. And then you look at, you know, Hawaii is a good example, ocean rising, uh, ocean levels are rising. So those reefs essentially are the barriers for storm surges. Now, as those reefs degrade and they no longer have coral on them, they're not building upon themselves to combat this uh, tidal surges that come up onto the, um, you know, freeways or the roads and take a road out, take a bridge out, take huge sandbanks out, take houses out. Uh, if you look at the Solomon Islands, they're disappearing at an alarming rate. Um, they've lost thousands of acres to oceans rising and tidal surges. Um, Kiribati is another one. Uh, they're losing all their islands. Um, and they've actually made deals with Fiji to rehouse and repopulate the population of Kiribati in the next 30 years because they reckon it's all going to be gone. All right. So you talk about, you know, just the impact if the coral is not there to stop storm surges and things. I was thinking about this because I was in Hawaii a couple months ago. You know, we have sales teams out there and uh, I had my wife with me. We were sitting, you know, at Sunset Beach. We were watching the waves at Pipeline. And it's always surprised me the kinds of waves that the island can sustain, right? That there's up to 30 foot waves sometimes that they always seem to like die down before they hit the sand. Normally, you know, where I live, if there's 30 foot waves, it's coming onto the road or there's, there's, there's massive problems. But I guess I'd never thought about that if the coral's dying and degrading, that energy has nowhere to go except for up onto the land. Yeah, it can't dissipate. That's the problem. Um, so yeah, you've got the food source, you've got that, you know, the whole dissipation of the energy from wave action coming through. And then you've got a complete breakdown of the entire ocean ecosystems because coral reefs are the nurseries for all the fish we put on our plates. So they start off as small fry, then they swim out into the mid zones and some of them swim out into the uh, oceanic current systems and swim the entire globe. Um, and obviously with overfishing, we're, we're pretty much every fishery is 94% overfished. So we're gonna then, the coral reefs are then gonna die. So then there's no, then those fisheries start coming closer and closer to catch those fish, but those fish are no longer at the reefs anymore. And it's just a tidal wave hitting each other going, 
uh, neutral. It's not happening anymore. No fish, no coral, no food. And that's happening. So, Julian, that's heavy. Yeah, man, it ain't, it ain't pretty. Uh, it's not a good thing. It really isn't. I encourage the listeners to go watch Seaspiracy, Cowspiracy, all the various different documentaries out there to educate yourself and uh, read, read about all this stuff because it's really important for everybody to understand that the future's coming and it's coming very quickly. I can imagine, you imagine, remember when you were, you were a kid and you'd go down the street on a skateboard or a bicycle uh, or even, you know, just sliding on snow and you were really happy at one point and then at a split second, that point went a little out of control. You went too fast and you end up hitting like a trash can or you fall off your skateboard. That's where we're at. We've been cruising really, really well. And we're at that point where we're going to just slowly slip into our controlness. And we're at that precipice of complete our controlness with all our ecosystems across everything in our planet ecosystem. It's terrifying. So when you, when you lay it out like that, um, your mission is to restore coral, but are you hopeful that you'll be able to make an impact or does it, is it a, is it an inevitability and we're just trying to delay it as long as possible? Like what's your, what's your mentality on it and kind of what, what gives you the passion? Cause I think a lot of people would be like a ignorant to it or B the problem is so big that they get hopeless. Right. Or, or, yeah. you know, yeah. pretty pessimistic about it. Yeah, so in my humble opinion, uh, coral is toast. Uh, we're going we're gonna to lose a massive amount of it. There's, no, there's just no two ways around it. However, if we can save small pockets, much like the um, coral bank that Australia is building, well, we can have coral banks in the ocean if we're halving this rare coral. So the old school mentality was pretty straightforward. Coral would break, fall down, you pick it up, stick it back, make it on a stable, stable substrate, it will grow again but it was never really understood about the ocean temperatures rising. So now we're realizing just in the last few years that that regular method of restoration doesn't exist anymore because you're just essentially repopulating coral that's not resistant to the changing environment. So it's just destined to die anyway. So we've really got to make a huge effort to go after these genetically superior corals, grow them out as quick as we can and get them naturally propagating the reefs. So that's the hope. That's the little pocket of hope. So kiss goodbye to coral in the next 30 years, but let's you know just pray for that those pockets to exist and be hopeful. So the reason why we do sculptural marine parks also is when you create a stakeholder in an environment, they tend to protect it. So soon, the minute those sculptures go in the water, every single resort, dive operator, uh, restaurant, snorkeling operator now has a revenue stream and a valuable stake in what we've just placed in the ocean because they can market it and they can get revenue from it. What it does is it alleviates natural reef systems from divers too. So if I'm a diver and I'm looking for a dive to do, you've only got a few things, you know, drift diving, wreck diving, deep diving, cave diving, coral reef diving, night diving. Add sculptural marine park to that now. So what we're doing is we're taking divers off those ecosystems that are getting ruined by divers with chemicals through their sunscreen, snapping it, standing on it. You cannot believe what people do to coral reefs when they're novice divers. So we're taking them and alleviating that pressure, put them onto now a stakeholder uh, installation where everybody's invested in that now because they're making money. So that's the other element to that whole like little story about those uh, sculptures. And then everybody takes pictures. Everybody starts asking questions. What the hell is that doing there? Those boat operators will now be educated by us with a little script. Well, Karen Coral has planted this. They're doing this X, Y, Z. This is why they're doing it. Then that story is now told a thousand times greater than we can tell it. Again, showing you that picture of the dead coral, live corals, not telling the story. A sculptural installation, people taking pictures, sharing on social media, that's going to be a big game changer in terms of awareness drivers. Um, so you founded this just in 2020. Um, what opposition and what momentum are you seeing? A lot of uh, opposition just through red tape. Momentum, we're just getting, we're just doing really well. I mean, uh, to raise 60,000 in the middle of a pandemic for our installation is just mind blowing to me. And believe it or not, that's coming from $5 donations, $10 donations, and a oh, few, wow. obviously, 
obviously a few larger donations too from my old industry being in the construction i reached out to a lot of my wealthy clients and they supported me because they they know the skills that i've got and they know i wouldn't let anybody down if they gave me the money because it's just not in my nature i'm a very um active non-stop type personality and i really take pride in everything i do and failure really isn't an option for me even though i'm setting myself up for failure because no one's ever done this before so you know you're always in that like, oh god is this gonna work please let it work i hate failure <laughs> yeah but it needs you know in order for it to work it needs somebody that's willing to commit be, uh, at a hundred percent right and i think there's no question that that's you know, your intent to come into a world that looks like, I mean, even to say, you know, in my opinion, coral reef is toast, but if we could just create some pockets we can preserve and rebuild and restore, that's really admirable to me. And I think, you know, part of that probably comes from your upbringing. We haven't had a chance to chat much, but... May I just touch on something before we go into uh, another conversation? Because I really need the, the people to understand the, the gravity of this. And I'll use a quick please. analogy. Imagine yeah, please. from San Diego to Canada, two miles off the coast, that's all living animals, right? 50% of them are dead. Now, I can take you to Home Depot, we can buy a tree, a gallon of water, and a shovel, and I can plant thousands of trees in a day's day if I get people motivated. Ethiopia planted 300 million trees in 24 hours. We can do this, right? I cannot get a 1,000 people in the ocean with a tank on their bank to plant coral. The, the length and breadth of the United States and two miles wide, it's an impossible task. You couldn't do it. You have one hour of air and you can maybe plant 20, 30 corals. And we're talking 2,000 miles of coastline. It's an astonishingly overwhelming, um, you know, thing to even comprehend that we could ever save coral at that at that style of planting coral. So sorry to interrupt you, but just needed to paint that picture so people really understand the gravity of this. It's a $10,000 investment to get your dive equipment. Yeah. So yeah, having said that, then what's the what's the plan or the goal? Like, what would you do with that coastline? And and how can you com combat that? You build a coral bank for two hundred and sixty four million dollars and house as much as that coral as you possibly can until you just figure out scientifically a way to repopulate those reefs. So that could the be like a, part of that span. It's just a facility. It's like a seed bank that they have in Norway where they're harvesting all the rare seeds from all over the world. They're doing the same with coral. Mm -hmm. So they're taking all mm -hmm. the species, putting them into like a, a coral bank. So it's essentially an aquarium. So it's all tanks filled with coral. And they just sit there and hopefully keep them alive for the next 10, 15 years while they figure out what to do. And are, But are they gaining traction? I mean, you're talking about this one in Australia. You're talking about the success that your group has had so far. You talk about the work that you've done in, in Fiji. I mean, do you anticipate more people, um, you know, becoming educated? Seaspiracy is a big one. Um, you know, do you envision more people becoming educated and more groups starting or more funds coming to help your organization grow? No. More groups, maybe, but it's incredibly difficult. I don't think anybody understands what it's like to run a nonprofit. I work 12 hours a day. I've got 14 people on my team, and in one year, I've only raised $60,000. Now, I say only. It's enough to get our parks going, but I need a million dollars, and then I can go re really do my work. Uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you scale a, a problem like this with $60,000 and 109 sculptures? It's impossible. We're just mm -hmm. doing it to raise awareness and get this message out there that's slightly different than everybody else. So if you're not doing something different, no one's paying attention. So you really yeah. have to break the molds to do something different, to show up and shine a little bit brighter so you can get some attention on yourself. So maybe, you know, an influencer will, will, will post and you might get more donations. I mean, it's so sad and pathetic of where we're at right now in terms of revenue coming in less than one percent of all grants from our government goes into the ocean i mean one percent that's ridiculous wow. are you kidding me the ocean takes up 70 percent of our planet one <laughs> percent yeah. all grants yeah yeah it's wild it's one of those things too like you mentioned that you you first became acquainted with our show when you heard the the piece that we did with tim ballard um yeah and honestly like his mission is different, but the struggle is similar. You know, he was talking about something initially, you know, he's 
his mission is to end uh, human trafficking and that there's, you know, there's more people in slavery now than there ever was at any point in history. And um, one of the things that Tim talks about is it's something that people don't want to look at. Like, it's scary. It's gross. It feels, you know what I mean? It's like, ah, that's, I, you know, subconsciously, I'd better just stay in my lane and keep going about life because that makes me feel bad. When you talk about, you know, the complete loss of coral and the disruption to the oceanic ecosystem in 30 years, there's, there's kind of a feeling of like, man, I hope someone figures that out. But it's probably something that people just don't want to face the reality of. But the good thing is, you know, as he's gone on and, and, and forced people to shed innocence and look at it, it's grown into a pretty massive organization that has caught the attention of a lot of really important people. And, you know, what I see is somebody that you don't, you're retired. You don't have to be doing this. You don't have to be doing anything. You could be diving for fun at those reefs. And frankly, a hundred years from now, other than like your, your kids and stuff, it's not going to affect you that much, but I'm impressed by the fact that you care enough to, to stay in the fight and not, you know, retire and, sit on a beach somewhere that you're actually like, you just joined another fight that's incredibly difficult, you know? Well, if no one's doing it, then no one's doing it. Somebody has got to step up. And the more people that step up, drive awareness, shine shine really bright lights on, on certain things, that's when you can scale because it kind of snowballs outside of yourself to, you know, we just got a $13,000 donation from a hair product company because they loved what we were doing. I mean, that just blows me away when people recognize what you're doing, take a moment to care, and then take the action step to follow up that emotionality of caring. You know, we're, mm -hmm. we have to be in a caring state. If we're not in a caring state, we're in the me culture, selfishness. Capitalism, unfortunately, is driving a an epidemic of selfishness um you know and, and being in the u.s as soon as you mention socialism or you, you mention anything to do with like coming together as a group you're demonized but the reality is we all need to come together we all need to step up to fight what we've created and we can't be ignorant to it and just let it snowball we really do we've lived a great life yeah. everybody's lived a fantastic life you know it's gonna just change slightly in the future so if we don't just start stepping up and being a part of a community and being a part of something greater than ourselves even if it's only five dollars julian i think you know it's one of those things where I, you know i admire the passion behind it because it's an uphill battle and i wonder if uh, you know i'm not going to pretend to know anything about you other than the, the information that you've sent but i wonder if some of that grit and determination came from from your upbringing right it sounds like you had to learn to be tough at a pretty young age yeah Oh, 100%, yeah. Uh, so why don't you tell us, tell us a little bit about... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, tell us a little bit about how you grew up and where, you know, I, I, I'm interested in your worldview through the lens of growing up the way that you did in, in England. Yeah, so, um, you know, I grew up like... Uh, the word is not grown up, it's dragged up, right? <laughs> dragged up and left alone. <laughs> I like that. Oh. I've never heard that before. I got yeah, dragged just dragged up, up basically. So, I, like I mean, I don't want to paint like too much of a nightmarish uh, picture, but, um, you know, so at the age of six, I vividly remember police coming into my house, handcuffing my dad and taking him off to jail. Didn't see him again for four years. Uh, then my mother got a boyfriend. We used to call him the uh, Incredible Hulk because he was six foot five and would beat the living daylights out of my mother. And it was just a really traumatic life, uh, like growing up. Both parents were heroin addicts. My dad ended up going to jail for smuggling hashish from India back in the 70s. Kilos and kilos of hashish got caught. That was the six-year-old watching him get dragged off in handcuffs. And just the drug abuse that I got brought up with was pretty crazy. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to like age nine, my mother starts getting me to start drug dealing for her uh, without my knowledge, really. There'd be little notes that I would go down to her drug dealer and pick up drugs, bring it back to her and her friends. And I was just a little drug mule for her because in those days, uh, a minor would never go to jail for that. So when you're running heroin, speed, cocaine and all that type of stuff, you tend to uh, get away with it as a youngster. So what I realized really early on, around 11, fast forward another two years, that I could write my own notes, go get those drugs and start selling them. 
So when you don't have food in your cupboard, you don't have clothing on your back, you tend to step up and do anything that is offered to you as a window of opportunity. And you exploit those windows. I ain't going to lie. I was a terrorist. I was not a good person. I would be very, very um, angry, very violent. Grew up in a very violent environment, especially when you're a drug dealer. So I started drug dealing, basically. Started selling to all my friends. At at age 11? Yeah, without a doubt. Jeez, man. And I was good at it. I was really good. (laughs) I did my first LSD trip at 11. I mean, I just kicked life off at 11 years old. By the time I was 14, 15, I was earning more than an average person worked 40 years in their life to earn money. So when you look at it like that, it's like, man, you're not going to stop a teenager. There's no way you're going to get in that way, you know. Man, I just, that's so crazy. Did you have siblings? Yeah, brother and a sister. My brother was five years old, so I would start dealing with all my brother's friends because I had better connections than they did because of my mother being in the history of drugs for 20 years. She had way better connections. So I would then start dealing to those guys. And, uh, you know, I became like a little legend within their group. Uh, And, you know, growing up in a drug house, I mean, we would have parties every single night. You know, I mean, we had streets shut down because of the violence that would erupt in our house and cops would just cordon the roads off and just let us get on with it because it was just too much for those guys to handle. And uh, we were just out of control, completely out of control. I can't, I just can't imagine, you know, I've got, we're about to have our sixth kid right now. And uh, my son is 11 and uh, he's in this, he's in this program called junior guards, you know, they're down at the beach doing lifeguard stuff. And uh, (laughs) today, today uh, is kind of a big day because in junior guards, you get to jump off the pier. So he goes down to the pier. And just before I started talking to you, I got a video of my son jumping off the pier and my wife, hey, I'm going to go down to the pier just to make sure everything's okay. He's 11. I think of you at 11 and you're running a whole underground drug ring with no parents in sight, it sounds like. And frankly, man, just as a concerned parent, it's, I'm amazed that you survived it in the first place. I mean, drugs, you don't know what you're mixing. You don't know what you're taking. You don't know what you're selling. You don't know who you're involved with. I mean, my gosh, you know? To be fair, I didn't care. Yeah. So when you don't care, really nothing's going to hurt you. So we would pop everything that came through the door. So it would be pills from pregnant women that were on antidepressant pills. We'd get up as down as you name it. We'd sell those. We we were just out of absolute control. And the turning point was, so fast forward again, to so about 14, you know, I just stopped going to school. But I went for lunches and uh, breakfast. So in English schools, they feed you. So I would go into school and get my food and then bail. Uh, But that was my little revenue stream too. So I could sell to the kids at school. I get my food and I bail. Six months later, the teachers, I was in the classroom like signing in. And he's like, who are you? I haven't seen you. You've been here. I've not seen you in six months. It's like, yeah, because I don't come to class. I just come to get the food. And I was an arrogant little shit. I would literally... (laughs) I'd be so ruthless to these teachers because I just didn't care, right? We had drug squad coming up to the school because I was dealing acid in the school. and I was just I was just not a cool pet kid, you know? Even though everybody wanted to be around me because I was that legend in school where all the kids wanted to be the bad with the bad boys and, you know, they would come over to the house and we could just do whatever we wanted. It was a, it was a no-brainer. So uh, the, the headmaster says, you don't want a beer. I said, no, I don't want a beer. And he goes, well, we don't want you here either. So I left school at 14. Uh, and a friend of mine was like, hey, do you want to uh, come and work with me? And you can run your drugs through the job. So we would, we were working in a painting and decorating field. And it was proper painting and decorating. It wasn't like, uh, you know, just a, a corking gun and a roller. It was like, hey, we're doing gold leafing. We're doing French polishing. We're doing a restoration on 400-year-old manor houses. And I was working for this painter who didn't care what I was doing. So I would put quarter pounds of hashish and empty paint tins and run them across the country to all my connections using his paint van. But I really liked the industry. And I started getting really good 
good at it. I had something to focus on other than the incomplete negativity and demise of my life that I was watching around me. Fast forward yeah. three years later, my mother commits suicide, kills herself eventually. She'd been trying to do it for ages. I found her on the living room floor with the gas on and her wrist slit. I've caught her with bottles of pills swallowed her to take her to the uh, you know to the hospital oh to get my stomach. God. Uh, and then so she killed herself and left me with a seven-year-old sister so as soon as that happened i've been working for a few years with this guy started to get really good at it this uh, and meanwhile all you got to understand i had social services breathing down my neck i had uh, probation officers because i'm getting into trouble uh they were breathing down my neck and and i was only 17 at the time and they said hey we're going to put your sister in foster care i said you do that and i will kill every one of you scumbags i will just destroy this town i will lose my mind i said look just let me have a go at it let me see if i can deal with it so i was left with a mortgage a nine-year-old sister wait that they said dressed. yes to that they said yeah because I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a smart kid, right? So I've been hustling all my life. Sure. I knew how to navigate these things and hustle somebody into what I want. You know, I'm a good salesperson, right? I've been dealing drugs since I was 11. I can get myself out of jams. I can get myself out of pr problems. I can hustle. So I hustled it. Mm -hmm. I said, look, if you do this, you'll destroy our family. What little is left, right? So they said, okay, go ahead, you know, give you six months. No alcohol, no drugs, no nothing in the house. So I was like, okay, fair play. I kept on my business outside of the house. The house was immaculate. My current, uh, um, my current girlfriend at the time, now my wife, uh, moved in, helped me look after her. And then I moved to the US when I was 19, and that's when it all started to change for me. I was still drug dealing, but I was in the construction field and earning tons of money. So the drug dealing money was what I call dead money. That was the jet skis, the boats, the fun, the meals, the partying, the traveling, all that. The work money was investing in properties. And then I, I slowly understood I was more skilled and could live a really good healthy life if I focused on construction and I watched a friend of mine do 25 years to life for smuggling speed from America and I realized I don't want to go to jail it was a three strikes you're outlaw uh, and I, mm -hmm. I didn't need to do that anymore it wasn't a matter of survival you know I was in survival mode no one was giving me jack I had to take it and I had to really manipulate my world to suit me better than anybody else. So there's a tenacity that comes from that. And now I apply that tenacity fast forward 30 years, you know, obviously I haven't been in this world for 30 years, you know what I mean? So we're talking a long time ago. So you fast forward now and that tenacity is still in me to be able to really make things happen, understand how to do it and get to the end game really quickly. So. Well, it's a positive ignition of your survival instinct, right? Like you probably feel some of that where it's like, man, this is a problem that if somebody doesn't, you know, full commitment to things sounds like the only way you've known pretty much your whole life, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, it does take a leap of faith to sit in a car for four days and with a jail sentence of 10 years hanging over you if you get caught. You know what I mean? So when you're in those mm -hmm. scenarios, you really got to commit. And you've really got to understand that there's huge uh, uh, repercussions on the line. So, tra you know, translate that into the environment. I understand now there's huge repercussions on the line. And if I don't step up and do everything I possibly can, my children are going to suffer. Your children are going to suffer. So we've got to do something as a collective to come together to realize that there's suffering coming. Now, do we want to ease that suffering for our kids? We do everything for our children, much like your wife going down to the pier to see if he's okay jumping off a pier. We do everything to protect them. When it comes to environment, we don't mm -hmm. give a crap. Oh, whatever. Yeah. yeah, don't think about it. But you'll spend thousands on education, band-aids, ambulances because they broke their wrist, skateboarding, whatever it is. You'll spend thousands and you'll, do, you'll break yourself. You'll lose sleep over it. But then the environment comes around. You won't donate $5 to the cause. You, you mental? Mm -hmm. It's madness. It's absolute madness. Yeah. Yeah, I just it, it, it's probably just a lack of enlightenment, right? Like I, I think, and for some reason, I'm actually interested in your um, your output on this. But for some reason, it's become political, right? Like we were talking to one of our our guests that's a climate um, change scientist, and we we're like, why is it political? You know, cancer is not political. People don't say cancer does or doesn't exist, and the treatment is pretty much universally accepted by whatever political line you find yourself on either side of. But for some reason, when it comes to the science of climate and the science of environment and, and how it affects, 
you know, sustainable life, it seems to be political. Why is that? Money. That's all it's about, my friend. Governments have no, they, governments do not have an agenda for the people in any way, shape or form. That's why we get taxed so heavily. We're in a suppression system. They want to push you down as much as you can and make as much money as they possibly can. You know, companies, companies aren't companies and governments aren't governments. They're all one company, all working together systematically to make more and more money and control everybody on this planet. So when you look at it like that, that your government isn't working for you in any way, shape or form, they're working as a corporation, which they are a corporation, and they have hitmen that come after you for taxes. If you ever tried not paying your taxes, you go straight to jail, buddy. It's <laughs> game over. Yeah. You are in a militia yeah. group where they are coming after you heavy. There is like liens on your building, threats of going to jail. They will tax you and keep hitting you harder and harder and harder because they want their revenue. And it has nothing to do yeah. with anything but money. Question, did your did your sister come to the States with you? I meant to ask you that. Yeah, she did. Yeah. She did. So, and are you guys still so, close? Yeah, uh, yeah. So the well, she's back in England now, but the funny thing is so my dad, you know, he went to jail, did a mescaline trip in jail, saw whatever he saw, changed his life, moved to America. That's how I ended up coming here. But he moved here and joined a cult. No way. I grew up then like being in America around my father in this cult group, which is like another nightmare. You know, I just, it's like, you can't get through to this guy. He's like, it's just, you know, it's for the storybooks is what it's for. <laughs> you really, uh, so, you yeah, started this by saying you should write a book and you should. Yeah. So yeah. And there's lots of intertwined stories in that whole like little scenario there too. So. <laughs> Here, here's yeah, the thing that I like. When it comes to politics, go ahead. Sorry, Dimitri. Yeah, I was just going to say that I like that. You know, the you, the first part of your life, it sounds like you know survival, and you know any kid in that situation and that environment, what do you expect them to do, right? But the developmental part of your life, where you started doing custom painting and developing a craft and like a trade, and starting to feel the pride of doing a really good job. You know, and then to becoming a, a real craftsman that can do this custom steel work, evolving into doing something now that's yourself. It's been a wild journey, and it sounds like it actually had a pretty terrible start. But it's like a lot of art. You tend to take a pretty negative situation and make something that benefits other people, which is kind of your life story as I understand it, which is really cool, man. Yeah, but you got to understand. So I can tell that story and to you, it's a nightmare. To me, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm living my life on my terms. I'm earning great money as a young individual. Like I say, I was earning more money at 14 than I was most people I knew of a 40 year old bracket. I was just mm -hmm. stuffing money, cash into your pockets all day long. No one could tell me what to do. I was evading the police. I could do whatever I liked. So when you when you when any human being is has the ability to do whatever they like whether they come from financial means or come from the streets there's huge power in that then there's a belief system you can do absolutely anything so i've never shied away from anything and now you know i'm up to building 25 million dollar homes doing custom cabinetry recording studios i special in for 15 years uh home entertainment rooms i just went into the specialty field like no one else could in this town and i got hired into that and i was earning huge money because i just never said no to anything because i if i if you can understand where you come from and you can survive that you better be sure i could watch a youtube video on building something and be able to build it because if somebody else can do it i can do it and then if you're looking at the projected future of like, okay, what do I want to do with my life? Well, let's combine art, design, engineering, and all these things and do some good with it. Let's go save some animals, save some people at the same time. Why not? I love that. You know, and then I looked at my finances, right? So then, you know, fast forward to my age now, I'm a millionaire. I've got real estate. I've got all this stuff. I donate $2,000 a month because that is dead money to me, much like I told you about earlier when you have dead money and live money, right? So this is dead money that I have that I'm not doing anything with. I have no interest in investing it into anything because I've got what I need. I don't need food on my table. My mortgages are being paid. I have income. I can go traveling. So the rest goes into philanthropy. And I encourage anybody to look 
their finances. And if you look at, say, 3% of your finances is dead money, donate it. Give it to somebody who's doing something good because you ain't going to use it. Most people's money sat in the bank doing nothing. So you're better off investing it into the future of your children and doing something with that money than sitting on it or trying to invest to make more and more of it. It's an asinine approach to finances. It doesn't work. It's a really interesting thing to look at. And it makes so much sense, right? Like you think of the things that you invest in, but we often we often don't find um, companies doing great things for the eventual future of everybody. You know, I like I like Sophie. Well, and how can how can people find your cause and, and donate to the to the parks and the restoration efforts of, of your group? Well, it's just at Counting Coral on all the platforms. Uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, uh, Instagram, YouTube, <laughs> you name it. The website, uh, just at Counting Coral or CountingCoral.com. Um, you can always reach out and message me if you want to say hello and connect. Uh, but we're just trying to do something really positive now. We've got a lot of really cool people. There's 14 people in our organization right now. Um, great board of directors um, and just a solid team that is just driving this nonstop every single day. And it's all volunteers, interns, and uh, people just with kind, caring hearts that want to do stuff uh, and really well. Uh, and every single dime goes into this no one gets paid in our organization we will and that will always be like that we we have no interest in money and putting it in our pockets like a lot of uh, organizations do yeah well that's awesome well we encourage our listeners um you know to check out the check out the efforts of county coral and again if you have some some dead money as julian calls it put it towards something that'll sustain life going forward so julian thanks for joining us today man thanks for the education and for the stories uh, respect the effort, respect the cause, and thank you for, for sitting with us today. Well, listen, I really appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, I hope your listeners are encouraged by uh, some of the, the tales and the fun stuff that we're doing. It is a very interesting project, so uh, I think it's inspiring to people to see what we're up to. So thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. I think so, too. And thank you guys for joining us. This has been another episode of Electric People. If you've liked what you've heard and are interested in joining our teams, check us out at viventsolar.com forward slash careers. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes and subscribe. Leave us a great review and leave us a five-star rating. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric.